market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. For Douglas Ross to stand there and talk about losing grip of a party when he has been leader, the Conservatives have had the longest attempted coup in Scottish political history. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's politics podcast. I'm Alistair Grant, the Scotsman's political editor, and I'm joined today, as usual, by Rachel Amory, the Scotsman's political correspondent, and from London, Alexander Brown, the Scotsman's Westminster correspondent. Uh, there's lots going on in politics. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Gaza vote meltdown in Westminster, where Alex will be able to tell us exactly what happened and why, why it matters, or, or doesn't, perhaps. We'll be talking about the news that's just breaking as we're recording this with Argyll and Butte Council voting to raise council tax by 10%, rejecting the Scottish Government's attempts to have a nationwide council tax freeze. And finally, Alex was talking to the SNP MP Stuart MacDonald earlier on this week to mark two years since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So that'll all be later on. But just to start, a debate in the House of Commons descended into chaos on Wednesday night, I think it's fair to say, amid fury from the SNP and the Conservatives when the Speaker, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, eh, broke with convention to allow a vote on a Labour motion of an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. Sir Lindsay Hoyle later issued an emotional apology in Westminster, saying he was he had acted with the right intentions, but the SNP insisted they were treated with complete and utter contempt and there are now calls for the Speaker to resign. Alex, can you explain exactly what happened on Wednesday night and just what the atmosphere has been like in Westminster as well? well on the atmosphere, it's been absolutely feral, combative and unseemly. I don't think anyone from any party covered themselves in glory over the past 24 hours. So the issue began, it was the SNP, uh, as an opposition day debate. They get three a year. And this one was on Gaza. The party has repeatedly tried to raise the issue of Gaza, and they were yet again set to have another vote on a ceasefire. Problems began when Labour brought an amendment, essentially having very similar wording to the SNP's amendment calling for a ceasefire because the party has moved. But it took out the condemnation of collective punishment. Uh, the reason for that is Keir Starmer believes that it would be problematic to say that when, if in government, uh, the Labour Party has to work with Israel uh, going forward on a two-state solution. This amendment was then selected by the Speaker, even though convention dictates he would select the amendment from the Tories. The Tories had their own amendment, which didn't really do anything. Everyone knows the government policy. They'd only brought to cause an issue for the Labour Party. And a cynic might say the SNP's motion had, to an extent, been brought to cause issues with the Labour Party. I mean, that's what SNP MPs are saying to me. You know, we want a ceasefire. If this happens to embarrass the Labour Party and cause resignations, great. So no one expected the Labour amendment to be selected. And the advice to the Speaker was not to do that. But for some reason, uh, he decided to do so. And all hell broke loose. Uh, the Tories were absolutely livid and stormed out the chamber. They said they wouldn't be filing their motion. Uh, they wouldn't be taking part in proceedings whatsoever. While Stephen Flynn stood up and demanded to know where the speaker had gone because he had left at this point uh, and said they were being you know, held, held in contempt by Parliament. So the SNP did not get to vote on their own motion 
the Labour one passed. If you're looking from the outside, you go, oh, well, Parliament has endorsed a ceasefire. That's the end of it. The Labour and SNP don't have that much difference. They both want a ceasefire. It doesn't matter. Not so for the SNP, who feel like because they didn't get to vote on their own motion, they have been betrayed. Uh, they have no confidence in the Speaker, Sir Lindsay Hoyle. And now they are en masse calling for him to go. And I mean, how much does this, I mean, I made that kind of comment earlier on about whether or not this matters. I mean, from an outside perspective, this is obviously a hugely important issue. It's discussing something that's hugely important, but it seems like the entire thing has just got bogged down in this debate around parliamentary process. And from an outsider's perspective, you know, from a member of the public, for example, looking in in this row, I mean, how much does it reflect well on those involved in it? It doesn't really reflect well on anyone. I mean, you know, for the Speaker, he has broken with convention and he has lost the trust of several Tories and the SNP. And when you are the Speaker, being considered to be neutral is paramount. And the issue around him is there is an accusation that Labour essentially strong-armed him into selecting their amendment because Keir Starmer had a meeting with him shortly before the decision was made. His defence was, oh, it was about safety because of the la- after the last ceasefire vote, uh, MPs faced death threats. Uh, and of course, multiple MPs have been you know, killed before. So there was, to his mind, a logic. For the SNP, I, I am surprised personally that they're getting bogged down in this procedural debate. But speaking to them, the anger is palpable. I, I spoke to several this morning who told me they were very angry last night. And they wanted to sign the motions of no confidence in the Speaker, but they didn't want to do it while they were angry. They wanted to sleep on it. And I think it was the same for Stephen Flynn, who, you know, didn't call for the Speaker to go on the first day, but said he, well, you know, he was, his position could be intolerable. That's now changed. And now it is the party position the Speaker has to go. I'm not sure how much people outside of Westminster care about who the Speaker is. John Burko was up to all sorts of tricks uh, and all sorts of abuses of power. People just basically said it was fine. I think the headline really should be Parliament backs a ceasefire. That's what both sides want. And I think it's interesting that there is a slight division in the SNP. I listened to Ian Blackford talk and he he was saying that while he wasn't happy with what the Speaker had done, he was frustrated that when the two parties, the SNP and Labour, agree, it had still become this horrible spat where they had not worked together. I mean, even in the build-up, Labour and the Lib Dems are both saying, we've reached out to the SNP to work on them with this. Nothing's happened. And then you had the SNP chief whip saying, I've not had any messages. That's not true. It's a lie. I mean, it was all, the whole thing is about catching each other out with parliamentary procedure on on all sides. And and as for the Tories, they walked out. They walked out rather than take part uh, and have a vote. And then Jacob Rees-Mogg, who wasn't even in the room when the vote was called, had the audacity to say, oh, you know, we should have been allowed to vote. I would have liked to have a vote when he left in protest. So everyone looks really, really bad. It's an abusive procedure. It's a complete mess. Uh, and, I, and we'll be talking about this now through the weekend. I mean, Lindsay Hoyle's position is now very much at threat. Well, I was just about to ask, actually, I mean, how, how at threat do you think it is? Do you think there's a real risk that he'll, he'll have to resign? I mean, I think last time I, I looked at it, you know, there's SNP and Conservative MPs that have signed that have called for him to go. Do you think he's do you think he's in real trouble? I think he is in trouble from a perception base, but I don't think that he is going to be leaving the position anytime soon. I mean, obviously, Burko, uh, there was a move against him once and Labour MPs fought to save him. And I think it's worth noting when he arrived in the tea room, I think it was this morning, 
there was applause from some Labour MPs who felt like he'd done the right thing for safety. Also, Penny Mordaunt, the leader of the House, speaking in the Commons, said, we're obviously unhappy, but I know the Speaker has been a good man and we have worked with him before and we will rebuild relationships. And lots of Tory MPs also stood up to praise him. There was actually a really a really moving speech by Marc Francois, which is not often a phrase I ever thought I'd say, where he paid tribute to how he'd supported him and how he'd supported MPs uh, after an, after the MP had been killed uh, and how he had not just supported MPs, but made them feel safe and worked with them on creating a safer atmosphere. And I think that really rings true. Charles Walker, uh, an MP who is was so emotional during the COVID time, he would walk around carrying uh, a pint of milk in protest uh, over the things you couldn't, couldn't do. I mean, the man who literally walked around the streets carrying a pint of milk to prove a point, he said people shouldn't get too emotional and shouldn't be too rash. So there is a groundswell of support for him on the Conservative benches. The government are not minded to get rid. It's whether there is a, t- a change from the government, because if the government don't change, it's very unlikely, because there's no way Labour MPs will get rid of the Speaker. There is not the votes within the SNP and the Tory backbenches to do so. I mean, on the face of it, some of those kind of conversations that we understand were taking place and the reason, part of the reason at least that Sir Lindsay Hoyle broke with convention is these fears that MPs are under, you know, they're being threatened, their safety is at risk. Obviously, tensions are running extremely high. Uh, there is an element of fear that seems to be pervading Westminster about this. How much of that do you think is, you know, a kind of retrospective justification for this? And how much do you think is, is, uh, is a real thing that MPs are having to contend with? I mean, it is a very real thing that MPs are having to contend with. I don't think it's necessarily a right thing to do, because if you get to the point where you're saying government debate, government policy and the business of the commons is dictated by intimidation and threats, that's a very slippery slope. I mean, that suggests that intimidation can stop Parliament having its say and Parliament having its voice. But it is inarguable that MPs get death threats all the time. I think Jess Phillips says that she's got a panic room and, you know, a a multiple door system. And that is not unique. People have to change their addresses. Uh, There have been threats made against MPs' children. MPs' staff have been blocked from leaving offices because there have been hundreds of people protesting. I mean, after the last ceasefire vote, Keir's office uh, and other MPs' offices had huge protests outside. And you might say, well, there are people protesting, it's their right to do it. But if you're a young staffer who is just trying to work on, you know, often helping social work or, you know, helping people with their council tax, just smaller things like that. And you have people shouting at you and threatening you outside, which is what happens. That is a very unpleasant atmosphere. And security had to be improved. After the last ceasefire vote, there were changes to how security worked for MPs. So it is a very real concern. But the issue is it's not a concern that justifies a change in how parliamentary convention works. So you said, I mean, I think you said earlier on that this will, you know, this is now a kind of debate and argument that will run over the weekend. Where does this go next? I mean, if Sir Lindsay Hall's position is relatively safe at the moment in terms of it's unlikely that, well, unless the UK government's position starts to shift on this. I mean, where does this, have you got any indications to where the SNP want to take this, whether they'll do anything else to try and increase pressure or... I mean, if they're, if they're so angry about it, what are they going to do next? I spoke to several SNP MPs today and I said to them, you know, there is not going to be enough support to get rid of the Speaker currently. Will there be a point where you go, we're very unhappy about what's happened, but he's explained his reasonings, he's apologised, 
and you would just kind of accept you might have to just move on. Can you see the party getting to that point? And I was told repeatedly, there is zero chance they will get over it. He can no longer be trusted. And they also suggested that Keir can't be trusted for strong arming him, which is an entirely different point. But I do not sense any willingness to compromise but that doesn't mean they won't. I, I just don't see where the numbers come from. Penny Mordaunt said the government always listens to backbenchers and will do more to protect the rights of minority parties, even if it's not in their own interests. Essentially, the government perhaps will allow the SNP to have an emergency debate, which has already been offered by the Speaker. But I, unless there's a huge groundswell from the Tory backbenchers to get rid of the Speaker, which I don't see happening, there may come a point where the SNP just have to accept this is what's happened and perhaps just use it as part of an, uh, you know, an, another campaign message that Westminster doesn't let us have a voice. We can't even have our own votes. From that point, it's milk and honey to them. It's premium. We don't get to have a say. We're being blocked out by Westminster content. Well, I'm sure, like you're saying, I'm sure this will run and run. But from chaos in Westminster to another, uh, a different kind of sticky situation for Hamza Yusuf up in Scotland Rachel, we obviously, just before we came on this this podcast, we're recording this on Thursday afternoon, the news broke that Argyll and Butte Council has voted to increase council tax by 10%. What, why is this uh, a problem of potentially national significance? It could potentially be of national significance, as you said, because if you remember back to the budget that was set just before Christmas, a big headline to come out of that was there was to be a council tax freeze and that the government was to provide, was it 144 million, I believe? It turned into 147 million once it was recalculated. 147 million, my apologies. Um, 147 million pound to fund this council tax freeze. Now, over last week and the next couple of weeks, individual local authorities are going to be voting on their own individual budgets. And so far, a few councils have accepted the council tax freeze, albeit some reluctantly. But today, Argyll and B are the very first council to say, no, we are not following the government's council tax freeze. We are, in fact, going to raise council tax by 10%. Interesting that it should be Argyll and Butte. We know that they have um, had struggles recently in the past year. They are one of the councils who have officially declared a housing emergency, for example. So we know that um, funding is quite tight there in that area. But it could have knock-on effects. Is this the only council to do this or will this be the first of others and perhaps first of many to do it? So that's the question now for Hamza Yusuf. How many more are going to follow suit? And I suppose even just having Argyll and Butte, having gone down this route or voted to go down this route, already leaves that kind of nationwide council tax freeze, you know, that promise is already not going to happen. So this was something that Humsey Yusuf announced uh, at the SNP conference in October last year without consulting local authority leaders. There was a backlash fairly quickly to that. Uh, a lot of anger from COSLA, the council umbrella body, that Humsey Yusuf had announced this without talking to them first. There's a lot of concern about how councils were going to fund vital services. There's been an ongoing row about funding and this just seems to be A very difficult situation for Hamza Yusuf. I mean, if you look back to the speech he made at conference, he was quite clear that council tax was going to be frozen. That was the message that came out of that. Of course, that was never in or completely in the Scottish government's gift because councils control council tax rates. But the way the Scottish government was going to do that was to fully fund a 5% freeze so that councils could freeze it without losing out. On, in the aftermath of that speech, there seems to have been this ongoing argument. It just doesn't seem to be getting resolved. 
No, as you said, this speech at SNP conference, it didn't go down well from the start because council leaders said that they had not been consulted. So immediately, this got a lot of negative headlines straight off the back and it just seems to have gone more and more and more against the government's favour here because councils just are not happy with it. Now, as you said there, it was a 5% council tax rise that the government is funding. But this is way more than that. This is 10% that Argyll and Butte are going for. We know other councils had said that they would want to raise their council tax by a lot more had they been given the option for it as well. And a lot of arguments saying that the money that has been given is not fully funding the council tax freeze because they actually need more money. Now, of course, you can give you could give all of the government's budget to councils and they would still need more money. There's always going to be more money needed. But it's quite interesting that it's quite so much more than the 5% that was initially proposed. Yeah, and it seems to be kind of indicative of this breakdown in relationship between the Scottish government and councils that we've seen over the past few years. There's always been this kind of long-running unhappiness at the way the Scottish government treats councils, this perception that in recent years they've not been funding councils to the same degree that they get funded. The Scottish Government gets funded from Westminster and its block grant, for example. So this is kind of a long-running sore. And then we had that Verity House agreement last year. It's this kind of agreement between councils, between COSLA, between the Scottish Government, that they were going to reset the relationship. And part of that was to have a process of consultation so these kind of surprises wouldn't happen. And that seems to be under pressure now that there's this kind of row and council leaders are clearly not happy with the situation. Yeah, so I think uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that relationship goes on after this. I think one thing that will also be interesting to see, Argyll and Butte did declare a housing emergency. Um, Glasgow and Edinburgh councils have also declared housing emergencies in the past few months. Now, we know Glasgow has agreed, albeit reluctantly, to this council tax freeze. So it'll be quite interesting to see can Argyll and Butte get themselves out of this housing mess with this council tax raise compared to what Glasgow does? And if it is better, then that's going to be really bad for the government. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens there and how much better Argyll and Butte are able to handle the money they are going to get out of this council tax rise. And of course, quite a, quite a bold thing to do to uh, basically say that we're not going to take the money for this 5% freeze because by, by raising council tax, Argyll and Butte is not, presumably not going to get the money the Scottish Government had set aside for this freeze and instead, you know, they think they're going to get more money out of this 10% rise, which they will probably, but presumably face a potential electoral backlash. You know, people presumably will not be happy with that. Yes, I'm sure if you're living in Argyll and Butte, you probably aren't best pleased to wake up to the news that you're going to have 10% more tax to pay than your neighbours over the border. So that, that'll be an interesting one as well to see how that goes down. Well, we'll see how this plays out. Obviously, the Scottish budget, uh, as Rachel was saying, was published back in December. It's still going through its parliamentary process, but it won't be long now until it's officially rubber stamped. But on to a very different issue. Alexander Brown caught up with the SNP MP Stuart Macdonald earlier on this week to mark two years since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Hello, my name is Alexander Brown. I am currently situated in PCH with the wonderful Stuart MacDonald, SNP MP. How are you doing? I'm doing good, thank you. Now, you're not going to be in Parliament very much this week. 
Well, I mean, obviously, the, the normal amount. I'll be here when I have to be, yes. <laughs> I won't miss any votes. Yeah, no one's saying you're being lazy, but you're, you're going off to something else. You're going to Ukraine. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I'm going to Ukraine. Uh, so, as your listeners will know, Alex, this week marks the second anniversary of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia. But this week is also actually the 10-year anniversary of the invasion that started in eastern Ukraine and with the annexation of Crimea back in 2014. So I'm going there with a cross-party group of MPs um, and I think a couple of members of the House of Lords are, are coming as well. There will probably be legislators from right across Europe and the wider West in Ukraine this week, not just to be there to show support, you know, moral support to our Ukrainian uh, friends and colleagues, uh, but also to hear firsthand, first of all, what the situation is on the battlefield, but secondly, what Europe, the UK, the West, Ukraine's allies have to do uh, to step up to ensure that Ukraine does indeed win the war. And I suppose a lot of people would think, oh, you're going to Ukraine, that's at war, that's very scary. I mean, talk me through the pros of how you feel about going to that and, and what sort of measures do you think are in place? So I've been a few times. So as I mentioned, you know, Ukraine has been at war for 10 years. And up until the 2022 invasion, uh, that war was uh, confined to eastern Ukraine, uh, to the Donbass region of Ukraine. Uh, I first went to Donbass in 2018, went as far as the town of Avdivka, which was then on the front line. It was on the front line this time round. It has, Avdivka was um, subject to a Ukrainian retreat just at the weekend, um, unfortunately. That's a direct result of a failure of those of us in the West to give Ukraine the ammunition, the weapon support that it needs in order to push the Russians back. Um, and when I last went to Ukraine was in September 2022, so we're a few months into the full-scale invasion. And although the capital itself is relatively safe and secure, you do have to take measures, not just for your travel in and out of the country, but you have to take measures whilst you're there. So there is some sense of normality in the capital. Some businesses are reopened. People are going about their daily business as much as they can. but. The day will undoubtedly be uh, interrupted more than once with air raid alerts, sirens, that sort of thing. So my understanding is last year when people went, I think shortly after all the parliamentarians left, yeah. because obviously Russia doesn't want to create an international incident, or at least it can't, it's not going to knowingly bomb uh, Westminster MPs. That's uh, probably a bit too far. Um, it, it, bombed them, it bombed basically an hour or so after you left. Pretty scary. Yeah, so if you go back to the one-year anniversary of the full-scale invasion, everybody expected um, uh, Russia to, to put on a display of force. And in actual fact, it was uh, quieter than many people expected it to be, especially around the capital, which we know is the jewel in the crown that Russia seeks so that it can have a, a kind of puppet government installed um, in Ukraine. Um, but, you know, we are there because we're invited by the Ukrainians. You know, we're not going there to get in anybody's way. They really, really want to know that they do still have allies, that they have politicians from right across the parties uh, who are, are willing to step up and ensure governments step up to support them. And, you know, in the UK, given all of the issues we've had over the past few years, all of the divisive issues we've had, we've got an election coming up uh, this year, this is the one area where there is actually political consensus that, you know, whoever the government of the day is does need to support Ukraine and its efforts to defeat Russia. 
Well, hopefully we can catch up when you're back. Uh, safe travels, Stu McDonald. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And thanks very much for listening. We'll be back at the same time next week when we should hopefully be talking to Scottish Conservative leader Douglas Ross ahead of the Scottish Tory conference in Aberdeen. Lots to talk about there, including on oil and gas. It's an issue that's been coming up more and more in the kind of future of the North Sea energy sector. And I'm sure Douglas Ross will have lots to say about that. But until then, thank you very much for listening. <laughs>